What makes a good life? How important are relationships in helping us lead happy and meaningful lives? Dr. Robert Waldinger is an American psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and Zen priest. He is a part-time professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and directs the Harvard Study of Adult Development, one of the longest-running studies of adult life ever conducted. Dr. Waldinger's TED Talk about the Harvard Study, What Makes a Good Life, has been viewed more than 42 million times and is one of the 10 most-watched TED Talks ever. Dr. Waldinger asks the following question to his audience and readers, what makes a life fulfilling and meaningful? The simple yet surprising answer is relationships. The stronger our relationship, the more likely we are to live happy, satisfying, and healthier lives. Dr. Robert Waldinger, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're really excited to hear about this scientific study. And before we dive into the conversation, I believe you've selected a passage from your book, The Good Life Lessons from One of the World's Longest Scientific Studies of Happiness. Yes. I'll read from the very first chapter, just a few pages into the book. What is your greatest fear? Rosa read the question out loud and then looked across the kitchen table at her husband, Henry. Now in their 70s, Rosa and Henry had lived in this house and sat at this same table together on most mornings for more than 50 years. Between them sat a pot of tea, an open pack of Oreos, half eaten, and an audio recorder. In the corner of the room, a video camera. Next to the video camera sat a young Harvard researcher named Charlotte, quietly observing and taking notes. It's quite the question, Rosa said. My greatest fear, Henry said to Charlotte, or our greatest fear? Rosa and Henry never understood why Harvard researchers were interested in flying across the country to visit. The study was in full swing when he married Rosa in August of 1954, and the records show that when she said yes to his proposal, Henry couldn't believe his luck. And now, here they were in October of 2004, two months after their 50th wedding anniversary. Rosa had been asked to participate more directly in the study. Harvard had been tracking Henry year after year since 1941. So, for 63 years, he had opened his life to the research team. In fact, he'd told them so much about himself and for so long that he couldn't even remember what they did and didn't know. Like most of our young researchers embarking on new careers, Charlotte had her own questions about what makes a good life and about how her current choices might affect her future. Was it possible that insights about her own life could be locked away in the lives of others? The only way to find out was to ask questions and to be deeply attentive to every person she interviewed. What is your greatest fear? Charlotte had already recorded their individual answers to this question in separate interviews, but now it was time to discuss the question with each other. Henry said, his voice wavering, that I won't die first is my fear, that I'll be left here without you. And that passage struck me on a personal note, being raised by my grandparents. And I think all of us have kind of faced that too. And you really outline in your study and in your book, the importance of these long relationships, these deep relationships. What did they give us? Well, these are the relationships that help us feel really known and seen. To live through many years of life with another person means that you share a whole set of experiences, a whole set of history that you share with very few people on the planet. Yeah, to have the, the proof that one was here and it's not the material possessions. And it would actually be very fascinating to see, I mean, this was 
your studies conducted in America, but to see then how happiness has this genetic component. So different cultures, I imagine, like even indigenous communities where the sense of community is stronger and life is kind of lived more in public, where you could have this natural promotion of happiness and how that's changed with our industrialized societies and modern societies. And what are your reflections on that and how we really it's like a habit of happiness and how we receive that from our families, from our friends and our communities. Well, one of the big differences I've noticed talking with people from more communally oriented cultures is that our culture has a strong emphasis on the individual, on individual happiness, on individual achievement, on individual self-expression. And there are other cultures where the community, the family, and the neighborhood where you live are paramount. And the well-being of others is the first thing you think about. The most exemplary instance of that is in Bhutan. I visited Bhutan where they can't even propose a law for the legislature to consider in Bhutan unless they have a full section describing the effect on the community of any given law, the effect on the well-being of the whole population. So nothing is about the individual. It's all about the collective. Yes. And they're famously, they measure that, that index of happiness is taken into account in Bhutan. And we were very surprised to learn that our podcasts have gone to number one in Bhutan and they're environmentally keen and they like learning. Yeah. So these studies, how many years is it now? 85th. Really spanning a life. And then their children as well. So these are thousands of people that you documented in a deep way, not just, as you say, simple surveys, but asking the question, then asking them in the presence of their loved one or, you know, getting these multiple perspectives. So aiming to get that truth, because sometimes people answer one thing and it's the real story is something else. I don't think it was set out to be a study of happiness. I mean, it's adult development. What are some of the things that have really struck you about this study? Some of the things that have struck me, it's a study of adult lifespan development. And when it was started in 1938, it was actually radical to study normal development for two reasons. One is that most of what had been studied was about what goes wrong in development, which we still do because we want to try to help people who are having developmental problems. So that makes a lot of sense. But to study what goes right in development, that was unheard of. The other thing is that for a long time, we certainly thought about children as developing because you can watch children change every day, that change happens so fast. But many people thought that once you got to be in your 20s, you were kind of done with development. You found a partner, you found a line of work, you were set with regard to your personality, and that was it. Then you just lived your life. And of course, now we understand that there's so much that changes and develops through the course of adult life. But my predecessors, I'm the fourth director, and my predecessors were really insightful in their understanding of how much there was to learn about all the changes that happen across the adult lifespan. And indeed, when we look back in that 85-year span, of course, society, what people's jobs were, their connection with nature, you know, passing away from agricultural jobs to we have so much screen time these days. And studies have shown that our relationships with nature and spending time outdoors transforms our well-being, but more people live in very large cities where they don't get that. Children might be raised by set them in front of a screen and it affects their neuroplasticity at that stage. So these are developments that weren't around for the earliest participants in your study. Right. Well, 
every study that follows people over time has to deal with that interesting issue of the historical cohort effect. So our original participants were children during the Great Depression and the Harvard undergraduate group served in World War II. And all of these were important shapers of life that are different from the big global events shaping the people growing up now. And so we always have to take that into account when we study any group. What are the influences that are very particular to that historical period? And what are influences and developmental processes that are common to all of us, no matter when we grow up? Yes. And it also struck me because you have that divide, the Harvard graduates and the inner city, people growing up without that access. And it made me reflect on does having access to more knowledge, and this generation probably has the access to the most information than any previous generation, does that make us happier? You know, we're going into an age of AI and of course, internet is everywhere and you can just type something in and, and find out something in a second. You know, does having more knowledge or having a good memory, do you find, make you more a propensity or your possibility to be more or less happy? I think it is orthogonal, meaning it's unrelated, that yes, having information can make some people happy. Having information can be frightening to other people. There are people who suspect information. There are people who have great suspicion of science and academia and education. So there are all kinds of ways to be in the world. And there are all kinds of things that people value. Some of our participants didn't value information that much. They valued other things. And I think we don't really understand the effects of the digital revolution on human development, although so there's good research now and we're beginning to find out more, but information in and of itself doesn't seem to predict whether you're going to be happier or less happy. Yes, it's interesting. I think back to that generation that was marked or born into the Depression and subsequent generations in the Second World War and the trauma, those survivors of the Holocaust. And I know from new direct experience, I mentioned my grandparents, and that generation, like a generalization, is like when they experienced trauma, they didn't discuss it. Like a child might have died and they don't talk about it. I don't know if they're more or less happy. The ones that survive these great traumas, maybe by not talking about it or just looking to the future and not dwelling on the past, did seem to have a propensity to appreciate maybe. So they still have their memories, but they maybe don't reopen their wounds. What are your reflections on that? Well, trauma is really complex. And what we know is that some people react to it, as you say, by burying it, by just not discussing it and moving on. Some people talk about it a great deal. Some people only remember it after many years. They've completely pushed the traumatic events out of memory. So as with so many things in adult development, one size does not fit all. What we do know, and I think about this more from my psychiatry hat, I'm a clinical psychiatrist, and we know that many people who have, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, get great benefit from talking about the trauma in a safe place where they can process it, where they can put it into perspective. So there certainly is a case to be made for many people that facing toward traumatic events can help heal even though the natural instinct of many of those people from the World War II generation was to do just the opposite, to bury it. Yeah, I think it's the, the way. And having those, as you say, those deep relationships where one can really open up and not feel vulnerable. 
And I guess in sometimes the situations, it's like a luxury to cry. You know, that was something that you might not have survived if you allowed yourself to just stop. It can paralyze you from making effective action. And so going back and thinking about this kind of oversaturated with information now in this digital age, it's good to have some choices, but maybe too many choices can sometimes lead to this sense of lack of clarity and focus. So what are your reflections on that and where we would find our real happiness? Yes, I know that there are some findings that having too many choices actually can be detrimental to our well-being. But Barry Schwartz done a lot of work on that. He wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And I'm not really involved in that research, which is not mine. Yeah. And another thing that you reflect upon, it really came to light during the pandemic, but I think in our industrialized countries, loneliness, people say it's a, it's another kind of pandemic and the expression goes, and it is critical to the detriment of our well-being and also like a grand challenge to society. How can we overcome that besides just saying make friends? But I mean, it's hard for people when they have just digital platforms. Well, you're right. It is. It's so widespread that somewhere between one and four people in the U.S. will tell you they're lonely much or all of the time. So it's so widespread. And loneliness is that subjective experience of being less connected to people than you want to be. And that's why you could be lonely in a crowd. You could be lonely in a marriage. You could be perfectly happy alone on a mountaintop. It's really that subjective experience. And the solutions are not simple because the causes of loneliness are many. Some causes of loneliness and social isolation are systemic. It has to do with how our workspaces and our living spaces are structured. Great big anonymous high rises and cubicles that don't lend themselves to people socializing at work. There are all kinds of factors that influence whether we come together and are likely to talk with each other. And at the same time, there are psychological factors. Some people are shy and afraid of others and don't feel safe connecting with others. Those people need a different kind of help than a differently structured office work environment, for example. So much depends on the causes of loneliness and the situations. But so there are individual causes and there are systemic causes, but they all result in detriments to our health as well as our happiness. Indeed. And it seems to me also if we invested more in our, our teachers and our schools, because this is at that age, apart from the parenting, you know, and the parents aren't around their children like most of the time. There, there's, you know, huge parts of the day that we hand our children over to teachers, but they're not given necessarily the support, I, I feel where a lot of these skills and friendship networks are, you know, are made. I know that some of those in your study have been teachers. I thought that was interesting. There was a comparison between a, a lawyer who's more financially successful and a teacher who wanted to be a writer. They asked the, the two the same questions and, and the material success didn't translate to that sense of well-being and happiness And the teacher on unlimited wage, but had much more of a sense of connection, probably as an ideal relationship yeah. with the students. But I feel like we don't support the teachers enough if the teachers are to set that social fitness, you call it, if they're not supported, then it echoes through society. Yes, supporting teachers is certainly a good thing. I think that in the book, those examples, those two people were really different in terms of their ability to connect with others and their interest in connecting with others. So the teacher was particularly good at fostering the well-being of younger people. 
he was what we call generative. He was interested in helping other people develop and thrive. Now, you could be a lawyer and do that. You could be a carpenter and do that. You could be any number of professions and do that. So it's really kind of a personal quality of being interested in and willing to connect with others more than being a teacher per se. Being a teacher might be something you choose because you do want to connect with younger people and you do want to foster their development. Yes, in, indeed. And there's many teachers that don't have the title teacher, but they have that kind of mentoring, you know, yeah. relationships with people. And you do quote Lao Tzu in your book from 24 centuries ago, the more you give to others, the greater your abundance. Yeah. It really all does come down to relationships. And I, I believe not this sense of possessions and, you know, ownership, which is just at the end of it, you can't take all those things with you, but you have those nourishing people in your lives and even your memory of them as, as well. And, you know, it's interesting because of this compare and contrast that you can do with people who had the same birth dates, roughly, and maybe you're born into the same circumstances. And they're not even divided on the economic scale, but they're people who can have almost a similar like life path or potential for the life path. And one person could experience it and there would be it would be a tragedy for them. And the mm -hmm. same person could have those experiences, but they would find inspiration for their art or their comedy or inspiration to not repeat the tragedy of their beginnings and help change the lives of others. I mean, how does that happen? And how can we change our mindset that we're not set in stone, but we're always evolving? Well, some of it has to do with inborn temperament. So even fraternal twins, so they don't have the same genes, they will often develop along very different lines. They come out of the womb temperamentally different, one more irritable, one more placid. And so many things unfold from just our inborn style of reacting to the stimuli of the world. So that has a big influence on how we experience life. And then, of course, there are the many things that happen, all the things that unfold in our lives that then lead to other things. I mean, in my Buddhist world, we think about karma, and which is really just cause and effect, like all the ways that things unfold over time. So if you're a person who's frightened of people and you have a sibling who's outgoing and gregarious, you're going to see the same events and the same experiences differently. And those are going to lead you to other experiences. And so life unfolds and diverges for all of us along different paths based so much on what we come into the world with. And speaking of religion or spirituality or ritual, you know, depending on how you, that can help us heal and overcome, as you say, you know, the things that happen to us. Of course, we're all reflecting now on the current tragedies that are happening in Israel, Palestine or Ukraine and Syria. They're experiencing, you know, mass trauma. And I don't know if, you know, your training can, if you could set your mind to solving that, but we want to find peace in these regions. It's not like you have this sense of intergenerational trauma. So people are marked. They can't come at it with an uncarved block or, you know, the day is new and are starting all over again. So how do you apply this kind of religious sense to perhaps that heal those who are most traumatized today? Well, you don't overcome it ever completely. We're all the product of all of our experiences. So it's really a matter of finding paths, finding ways to make things better rather than making past experiences disappear, right? Past traumas don't ever go away. And in some ways, we know that past traumas can be a source of growth and strength. 
So it's really a question of how do we help people? You know, so all the people who are being traumatized now in the many wars going on around the world, I mean, this is such a terrible legacy in terms of how much damage is being done and how much healing would need to be done to put people on track for reasonable lives. And it's one of the reasons why trauma is so devastating for children, because it gives children the sense that the world isn't safe, people can't be relied on, and they carry that with them all the way into adulthood. So there's no simple answer. And what we really want to do is minimize trauma as much as we can around the world. And that's where everything that's going on now is heartbreaking. When we think about how many people in the world, children and adults, are being indelibly scarred by what's happening to them. And it seems to me like in a study of happiness, when one's tracking happiness or how you can promote it, there would be that distinguishing line. I think people who can produce happiness in their life, like they have a kind of conditions in their life where they can be happy. They might not have all the material wealth or all the conditions for happiness, but they can promote that. And you would say there's a sense of unhappiness or depression or trauma that it's just you were born into such circumstances that it is the logical response. I mean, to be happy in those circumstances, maybe find moments of joy, but to be happy would be delusional almost. There are some people who thrive and can find happiness even in terrible situations. Other people find life to be miserable and feel themselves to be victims even in situations that many of us would see as privileged. So there's a huge spectrum in terms of the perspective one has on your own life and your own circumstances. And it just means that there's tremendous variation in the effects of trauma. There's tremendous variation in the effects of healthy developmental circumstances. Some people develop in wonderful situations and they still have terrible lives. They become drug addicted. They become criminals. There's so many, there's so much variation in the life paths that we take because the influences on us, both biological and social, are so great and so varied. That's what studying all these lives teaches us. Yeah, I can imagine because sometimes we forget, we're so busy, we forget even to ask, who's this person opposite me? Who's this homeless person on the street? I always try to remind myself that person was a child once. They had a mother and father and yeah, we can forget that. So I can think it must be a gift for you to have this study that allows you to increase your empathy for others. And we talk a lot in the book about curiosity, about trying to bring curiosity to every situation and particularly to every person you meet so that you get interested in what was this person like as a child? How did they get to be who they are now? People who might be so different from me. And that's one of the things that that we find really strengthens people's relationships when they can bring that kind of curiosity. Yes, exactly. Because then you can be, as you say, if bad things happen to us, you can also be curious about it. It's like, oh, I'm going to do my own study on my own brain. <laughs> Why? How is that affecting me and how can I make it better? And I think that's one thing. I'm an artist writer, so I always would try to put a little bit of beauty into the world to transform something because drama is conflict, you know, but now it's a piece of art instead of an experience or a bad thing that happened to me. And so what are your reflections on the creative impulse and how that transformation, which is a kind of magical to take bad things into good and make it a teaching experience for others? Well, we all have creative impulses and we express them in so many different ways. So we studied a lot of lives where people's creativity was expressed, you know, in ways that 
won the Nobel Prize and some creativity in ways that made for making delicious family dinners and everything in between. So creativity, I think, springs in part from a wish to both embrace the world and to be seen by the world, you know, to embrace the world and to take in things and then metabolize them in such a way that you put them out for other people to see. And so because there is in much creative effort, a wish to have people see what's inside of you and what you want to express. And another part of your study does focus on how happiness can make us age well or the aged Unfortunately, in America and in many countries, a multi-generational family is not so much intact. So I think about these members of society who kind of become invisible. And so their relationships, as you mentioned, a one partner might die and they're just, they don't have that contact. So how can we, maybe as younger people, make those kind of intergenerational conversations? How can we promote that within society to make sure those less visible are not left behind and forgotten? Well, a lot has to do with creating situations where people naturally notice and talk to each other. And so that has to do with everything from creating architectural spaces, you know, neighborhoods, places where people might meet each other on the street, to sometimes literally setting up situations where people will talk to each other. So I think it's in France, they have benches that are specifically designated for people who want to sit down and have conversations with strangers. And so if you're sitting on that bench, that's a signal to the world that you're open to having a conversation and then someone can come and sit down with you and you can talk. That certainly sets the stage for talking with new people, talking with people from different generations. And then, of course, we can do that in our own lives and our own families. You know, you can decide, oh, I want to see who this person is, who I have always taken for granted, my older uncle or my teenage nephew. And that's an option we have all the time. And it often can yield some surprising and fun results. In his study of adult development, Dr. Robert Waldinger has found that science and Buddhism agree on what makes life happy and meaningful. Of course, he understands there is a spectrum in terms of perspective that one has on their own life and own circumstances. Dr. Waldinger's research has a fluid understanding on a subjective experience for all of us that include psychological factors, settings, individual happiness, big global events, communally oriented cultures, and individual self-expression. All of these are important shapes of life that people experience growing up and in their adulthood. One in five Americans report to feeling lonely. Loneliness can be fatal. This is an unprecedented epidemic in our society that started when technology worked its way into our homes. The key point this study identified is that the quality of relationship is important. Your quality of living is the quality of your relationships. It's not just that social connections are good for you, but they are the most powerful tools for improving our relationships and living a long, happy life. Waldinger on the power of meditation and how we get to know ourselves. And when we truly understand our bodies and minds, it makes us more compassionate with ourselves and everyone around us. And now back to the conversation. It's true that European cities, we still retain a lot of the weekly marketing and a lot of shopping is done every day as opposed to weekly or online kind of things sent to you. And I think that's something that became more and more, well, we had the pandemic, so people were ordering things and not having that interaction at all. But there has been this tendency to do shopping online and, and we don't realize the kind of benefits, even though it might be boring to wait in line of just knowing people within your community and even knowing who made the things that we're consuming. 
Well, also seeing people in person really matters. Shopping online is an anonymous, impersonal experience. You don't talk to anyone, you don't, you don't get a chance to ask questions. So there's so many ways that having real-time in-person interaction enriches us. And I think there is more research now about what's being filtered out in the digital world when we don't interact with each other in real time in person. Even on Zoom, interaction is good. It's better than nothing, but it's not the same as being together in the same room. Of course. Well, I think when you feel quite connected to you, then, and I have to think about the environment, so we can't be saying, I want to see you, so I'm going to put carbon into the atmosphere. And you have not so many faces when you have, I think, a whole room of Zoom people and they're less than the size of a poster shop. That's when it gets confusing and not the, the, the sense of connection is missing. But on that point of what we're losing in a digital world, in a flat screen world, you know, we've seen now with the development of AI and chat GPT and some people even suggesting companions to combat loneliness. That sounds good for the elderly, an AI companion, if you can't have a, someone there all the time, but something like that. And then others who propose things like AI therapists. Now, my feeling is that you want something physical, a person, not an algorithm trying to you know, listen to you because they're not really listening. And so this is kind of off topic, but what are your reflections on that? Because this is you know, coming down the pipeline for this next generation. Well, it's what I do. I mean, I do psychotherapy with patients every day. That's my clinical specialty. So for me, it is a puzzle how a bot, an AI bot could be responsive in a way that is helpful to people. On the other hand, if you had told me you could do meaningful psychotherapy on Zoom three years ago, I would have said no way. But it turns out you can and I do it. My colleagues do it. So I am open to being supportive surprised at what could happen with AI and mental health care. It is true that lowering the barriers to mental health care is really important. We don't have nearly enough by way of providers, by way of access to good mental health care. So if there's some way that AI could give more people more access to things that help, that would be terrific. Yes. As, as long as there is something, I think that you get something from the imperfections of a human companion or listener. Yeah. Because um, they really are understanding. <laughs> We're just not all data. You know, and another aspect of that you must be coming into your study now is with this generation, they're experiencing a lot of eco-anxiety. The situation has just become so, I mean, we're on route for 1.5 degree of change. We've even hit that in some places like Australia sporadically. So these are the things that are changing for this generation is a sense of eco-anxiety, a sense of the screen time. But that's what, what we encounter with our university students taking part is that they don't feel secure about the future. No, they don't. And they will say to us quite clearly, your generation messed everything up. And now we're left with the devastating consequences. Yeah, they're angry. It's very difficult. How do you get human beings to invest in something that pays off 20 years down the road or 50 years down the road? And that's the difficulty. It's not clear that we as humans are capable of really tackling a problem that requires so much long-term thinking. You know, politicians want results within the same fiscal year, right? And so what do we do with things like climate change or investing in early childhood development? 
Again, the payoffs are enormous, but they happen 20 years down the line. So I think that the, my advice to all of us is set up structures that are going to last and support these long-term goals. So not just one government that, that commits itself to slowing climate change, like the current U.S. government, structure organizations where that won't change over 20, 30, 50 years. Right? How could we do that? Because otherwise, we're just going to have alternating governments with alternating sets of priorities and an inadequate response to these bigger, longer-term problems. Indeed. And what have been in your studies, I kind of touched on it there, the benefits, we talk about relationships, but also the benefits of relationships to the natural world. Some people have that companionship, say, with pets or just going into a park, but it comes harder and harder as we live in this overpopulated planet uh, in cities and on concrete. Yes, and certainly the natural world has wonderful benefits. First of all, we are part of the natural world. We often think of ourselves as not being, as being in the world as opposed to be the world. I'm just what the world is doing right here, right now in this little corner. I'm not separate from the world. And it's that thinking about us as humans as being separate from the world that's gotten us into so much trouble. So yes, absolutely. Being in nature often reminds us, oh my gosh, I'm part of this enormous, magnificent whole. And that can inspire more activity to save the planet. And But in addition, I'm a Zen practitioner and you can appreciate what's here right now, any, including in a concrete jungle. You can find amazing things to discover in a concrete sidewalk if you just stop and look. So there are a lot of ways that we can take ourselves off of automatic pilot, which we're on a lot of the time, or mine, and really come into presence. Certainly in nature, it's wonderfully beneficial, but even when we're not out in a beautiful setting, we can do that. That's so true. And what I think is so interesting about the Zen tradition and meditative practices, one, you want to cultivate tranquility, but it's also an acceptance that there will be suffering or not an expectation of constant happiness, which I think has led to addiction and wanting these dopamine hits on social media constantly more and more. Just share with us how you reset yourself through that tradition and what that really means. Well, one of the clearest things is that studying these lives, we know that every life has hardship. Every life has sorrow. Nobody's happy all the time. Doesn't matter how privileged you are, how rich, how famous, nobody's happy all the time. And that's important to name because we can sometimes give each other the mistaken impression that if you just do all the right things, you'll be happy. You know, So if you look at somebody else's social media feeds, they're not posting their photos of when they feel miserable or hungover. They're posting their photos of when they've been at a good party or on a beautiful beach. And so we can give each other the impression that everybody else is living their best life and they're happy all the time. And it's just me who has ups and downs. And what we find, and this is what we put in the book through these life stories, we put in life stories, not of happy endings, but of real stories of ups and downs and challenges and joys as well. Indeed. You begin the book, you ask that question, which seems so simple, but it's kind of hard to answer. What makes a good life? And so for you, what makes a good life? What has given your life meaning? What have you gotten? The greatest joy from in this study? Well, personally, I would say what gives me joy is doing things I care about with people I care about. Those are the two big things. It's true. And what do you tell young people, you know, you have this wisdom of experience and having absorbed many lives. So as you think about the future, 
what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? That there are so many ways to be in the world and there are so many ways to lead a life. Not to worry that what you're doing isn't what everybody else is doing. There's a wonderful quote, and I'm losing the memory of who said it, but but he said, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. And what that means is basically, you know, you are going to do what is uniquely you and that's fine. And that it's really important to remember that because the world is full of people who want to tell you how you should be. And the people who were the happiest and who thrived in our study were the people who really found what was enlivening for them. And to the best that they could, they pursued those things. And as you look back on your path, and as you say, you, it might have been clear at the beginning, but it has had these many pleasurable divergences. And as you look back at your path and what set you on this journey to becoming a psychiatrist, you know, what have you learned and what have you appreciated about it? And who have been some mentors who inspired you along the way? I've had wonderful mentors. I'm standing on so many people's shoulders. I mean, there are too many people to name on this podcast. And I think that's another thing that's worth naming for younger people, that this myth that there are self-made people, usually we talk about self-made men because they're the ones who often claim it. That is a total myth. Nobody is self-made. Everybody relies on the people who came before and relies on help from others, even when they don't know they've received it. And so I would say, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate to have people in my life who were helpful and encouraging. And finding those people is one of the great tasks of life for most of us. Indeed, and keeping that curiosity alive and your book and your study certainly gives us much to think about, to reflect upon our own life. So thank you, Dr. Robert Waldinger, for sharing your insights into happiness, the good life, and helping us understand the meaning of being connected to other people so we can be healthy and regain a sense of joy and lives of greater purpose and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well, thanks for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Camila Quintanilla with the participation and collaboration of universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Camila Quintanilla. The creative process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.